Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So we've looked now at the psychological and social implications of being in this wheel, which is really a wheel of repetition and uh, repetition of compulsive patterns of thinking and acting and reactivity. Uh, And we focused a lot on bringing our mindfulness practice to this space between feeling and our reaction to feeling. So it's not so much that story is completely dissolved, although that is possible in many types of meditation practice, which we're going to talk about later, but it's more that we can enter this space of feeling and watch the storytelling process take off without actually identifying with it or misidentifying with it. And this is really important in terms of our relational life and in terms of our society. Because what tends to happen is when we're caught in repetition, we're reacting all the time. We're not responding creatively to our circumstances. We're just caught in old repetitive patterns. So what's really important here is that we start to see that restraint or the ability to feel what's happening in moment-to-moment experience without acting on it is actually an ethical undertaking. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, often defines ethics as a process of restraint or a practice of restraint. In psychological terms, we call this the delay of gratification. Being able to notice a craving without having to so quickly gratify it. So what I'd like to do uh, for the next part of this class is take you into His Holiness the Dalai Lama's office. Um, When I'm speaking now, just two weeks ago, uh, the Dalai Lama just finished the 27th annual Mind and Life meeting. Uh, Once or twice a year, uh, His Holiness meets with scientists or psychologists or biologists to discuss the intersection of science and traditional contemplative practice. Then he takes what comes out of those meetings and encourages people to create institutional forms of practice that can be brought to life in schools or in medicine or in academia or various other sectors of society. So what you're going to watch now is uh, 
the researcher from uh, Madison, Wisconsin, named Richie Davidson, uh, giving a presentation to His Holiness the Dalai Lama about how he works with adolescents and research around adolescence and the importance of delaying gratification. And he's going to show some of his own research and then contemporary research in this area. And it's also going to be interesting to watch the different ways the Dalai Lama responds uh, to this research. So uh, he's going to begin talking about something that uh, I think many of us uh, intuit. Um, but he shows some statistics that really brings this home, which is that because of pollution and diet, there are areas of urban populations in the United States, he's referring to in this video, where puberty is now nine years old. So what that means is if the onset of puberty is nine years old, adolescence now is the longest it's ever been in human history. And if adolescence is not only the longest it's been in human history, we're also seeing that the rate of mortality in adolescence is also the highest it's been as well. So this is a really troubling statistic. And what Richie Davidson is showing is that mindfulness practice, which is also a practice of restraint, comes in to help people when they have trouble delaying gratification. In other words, when they're addicted, and not just addicted to um, uh, caffeine or to heroin or to alcohol or cigarettes, but addicted to patterns of living that really don't offer true and deep forms of nourishment. So hopefully you can watch this presentation now with this circle in the background to see the relationship between delaying gratification its effect on the mind and body, the way that mindfulness can undo old habits of addiction, and most importantly, the social implications of one's ability to delay gratification, especially in adolescence. So enjoy this video, and this will make up this class in this online course. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to begin uh, today by giving some orientation to some of the issues that we're going to be addressing over the course of the week and raise a number of, of questions. And so uh, I'll just start with um, some uh, initial um, some initial uh, uh, conjectures or premises, and one is something that Diana mentioned, and that is addiction is not something restricted to substances. We are addicted to many uh, kinds of things, not just drugs. Um, and yet, uh, uh, the roots of suffering, according to the Buddhist and other contemplative traditions, uh, qualities like craving and desire, and aversion also play important roles, not just in drug addiction, but also in other kinds of addiction as well. Neuroscience teaches us that the circuits in the brain that are important for craving and desire and aversion hijack or they modulate other systems in the brain that are important for regulation, for restraint. 
Uh, and this is one source of problems that result from the addictive process. And they bias our perception, they bias our decision-making, and uh, a number of scientists have come to see that this may be uh, one way to understand from a neuroscientific perspective the roots of delusion or ignorance, where the very nature of our perception and our decision-making is biased by these uh, emotional systems in the brain which are interfering with the systems that are involved in regulation. And I'll show some examples of that as we go along. And then there are individual differences. We're, uh, we're all the same in a very basic way, human beings, but we're also different. We have different temperaments. Uh, we have different personalities. And those play a role in determining which individuals are more likely to become addicted to either drugs or addicted to other kinds of uh, activities like um, uh, uh, to f food addictions or uh, addictions to uh, things like the internet or work. Uh, and one of the fascinating findings in science, which we think is really relevant to secular ethics, particularly in children, is that qualities in very young children, in children four and five years of age, predict the extent to which they'll show addiction when they're adolescents and young adults. And we can measure these qualities longitudinally. So we can measure them in children very, very young, and then follow them for 20 years, mm. and we can see how the qualities early in life are associated with the likelihood of becoming addicted later in life. But environment, do you care? There must be also environment. Clearly, environment plays a critically important role, but all other things being equal, children who have uh, a uh, difficulty in delaying gratification, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, um, but being able to um, postpone getting an immediate reward uh, and inhibiting and restraining themselves in, in a way, uh, and waiting, children who, who lack that capacity when they're four and five years old, on average, are more likely to show addiction later in life. Uh, and yes, the environment plays an important role, but these are still features which uh, persist over that period of time. So this is an outline of what I'm gonna hopefully cover. I may have to shorten some things as we go along, but I'll talk about the brain circuits that have been Im implicated in addiction and preview some of the work that will be coming. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the kinds of impairments that are associated with changes in these brain circuits. And then we'll say a little bit about the particular problem of adolescence, which um, in the Western world especially... So the age range would be 11 to... About 14, 16. 16. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll 
also talk about early interventions as prevention. And this is where the intersection of our topic, craving, desire, and addiction, and secular ethics really comes together. Um, because there is increasing evidence to suggest that early interventions uh, that specifically target the kinds of things you've talked about, Your Holiness, in secular ethics, for example, uh, the ethics of restraint, as well as the ethics of virtue and the ethics of compassion, may be important as early interventions that could be preventative mm. uh, when they're taught to young children. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about how contemplative interventions for substance uh, abuse may operate in the brain. And then I'd like to raise some issues that are unique to the Tibetan situation. They're, they're actually now, for the first time, good data on addiction among Tibetans in the um, Tibetan Autonomous Region. In, in, uh, uh, and, and I'll share some of those data, uh, which I think are very interesting and um, relevant to, to our whole topic. And then we'll end with a whole series of, of questions. So uh, this is a diagram that we'll see many times this week. Um, this is a diagram of uh, the, uh, the medial surface of the brain. So if, if the brain was sliced through the nose and opened up, uh, we're looking at what we call a sagittal view of the brain. This is the front of the brain on the left, the back of the brain on the right. And uh, there are several circuits that are highlighted in this diagram. One is a circuit uh, for motivation and drive uh, in green. Uh, another is a circuit that is labeled reward and salience. And these are two circuits that we'll hear a lot about as playing a very important role in addiction. Um, and particularly the reward and salience circuit is a circuit that gets very activated uh, in response to stimuli in the environment, information in the environment that has been associated with substances that are abused. Richie, can you explain salient? Salient means um, uh, uh, significant, uh, very um, important. Uh, the inhibitory control circuit is also very, very important because that's the circuit that we think is really important uh, for restraint. Uh, and it exerts, it exerts control over these other circuits. And um, what happens in, um, uh, in addiction uh, is, and I'll, I'll go to this, actually this, this next slide so we can see it more clearly. Um, what happens in addiction is that the salience circuit, which is illustrated in red, expands in its importance and the control or restraint circuit diminishes. And so... Uh, <laughs> So in a non-addicted person, the, the ability to inhibit these impulses 
is greater, whereas in the addicted brain, uh, the extent to which uh, importance is assigned to uh, to cues in the environment that are associated with these substances expands and the capacity to control them diminishes. And this is a prescription for problems because this will lead to increased drive which will uh, result in an addicted individual consuming more substances. So this is in terms of brain activity? It's in terms of brain, brain circuits, yes. So in one of your earlier slides, you talked about it could potentially have implications for understanding where delusion and ignorance is arising. So how would you relate that to this slide? So the, the way that would work is that the, uh, the salient circuit is increased and memory... Uh, is also uh, expanded, and what happens is that memories become distorted oh, yes. um, mm. because they, there's increased significance, inappropriate significance that's attached to them, uh, and so they become distorted uh, in, in memory. So that's one way in which uh, th this kind of delusion can occur. So why would the salient side increase in its activity so much? Uh, the salient side, we're going to be hearing a lot about it, and that will, it's actually a good segue to go to this other slide where um, these are the chemicals the, the involved in addiction. One of the ones we're going to be hearing a lot about is dopamine, uh, and that's illustrated in yellow. And the, the dopamine has many different functions in the brain. Some of them are listed here, including uh, motivation and pleasure, mm. but also compulsion. Uh, and uh, salience is changed because the dopamine pathways are changed in the brain. And um, Kent Berridge and also Nora Volkow are experts in this area, and they will be presenting um, scientific evidence to show that these dopamine pathways in the brain are altered through the addiction process, and that increases salience. Mm -hmm. Now, I alluded to... Um, oh, the so in terms of you know if we try to understand the delusory part of this where there is this distortion occurring where the temporary relief seem to take on this you know, major importance. So how does that distortion play into Not this? Not here, you, you know, uh, to law of causality. Take under the short-sighted satisfaction. Then, because I take it, I should 
for example, that you, you show the neural this is cause. neural pathways that yeah, are so, so for the dopamine pathways. Oh, that produce the short-sighted sort of desire. Y- yes, yeah, so, but the, the, the way we think about the causal arrow, just briefly, uh, is when a person who has never tried a substance before mm-hmm. tries it, uh, that begins to alter the chemistry of the mm-hmm. brain. Uh, and then certain... Um, cues in the environment that mm. may have been associated with drug taking uh, are associated with those changes in the brain. And so, for example, let's say a person took a drug in a particular room in their home. When they just go into the room, just the sight of the room or the smell of the room might trigger those same chemical changes in the brain before they actually take the drug. Uh, and that heightens their craving. Uh, and biases their perception, biases their decision-making, and then leads them to... That's according to one model of how this works. So in that sense, the delusion that you're talking about, uh, Richie, is more of a consequence. Yes. Yeah, oh, yes, a it's a consequence. Yes, absolutely a consequence. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is a paper that was published by Nora, who will be coming here. Uh, and it talks about the prefrontal cortex. Uh, and that's an area that's very important in restraint and in con- uh, modulation of the impulses. And she, 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 this is the abstract, and I'd like to just read the last sentence. She said, disruptions of the prefrontal cortex in addiction underlie not only compulsive drug taking, but also accounts for the disadvantageous behaviors, the problem behaviors that are associated with addiction and the erosion of free will. The erosion of free will. 
So this points to a very, and this would be seen, Your Holiness, as a consequence, not as a cause, but this is a result of. Uh, and then that has further consequences uh, for uh, subsequent problems. It, it will then, it's a, a negative spiral. So this is just findings which show uh, that um, from many, many studies, this is a summary of many studies which illustrate that um, individuals who, who have addiction problems have decreased activity in this prefrontal region of the brain, which is, uh, in, as the previous paper described, is associated with a loss of, of free will. Now, one way to think about this is that these changes in the brain can lead to impairments in different ethical dispositions. And one thing that we would say uh, is that prefrontal impairments, the impairments in this circuit that's very important for regulation and <coughs> control of impulses, can lead to impairments in the ethics of restraint, to use a phrase that you've used, Your Holiness. Whereas um, changes in other parts of the brain, in um, areas that uh, Kent will talk about uh, tomorrow may lead to impairments in the ethics of virtue and the ethics of compassion. Uh, they're they're uh, in different circuits of the brain that we know to be more involved in the emotions uh, and may lead to difficulty in the cultivation of these positive emotions that are associated with the ethics of virtue and the ethics of compassion. And this is uh, I think some important connections that we'd like to introduce in the first session and we'll go through the theme of the meeting, uh, uh, connecting the work of this meeting with the larger program that Your Holiness has been so interested in and that Mind and Life has now embraced uh, um, relating to the Secular Ethics uh, Initiative. Okay, so I'd like now to talk about adolescence. Um, I have two children. You've met them both, Your Holiness. And uh, fortunately, both are now past adolescence. <laughs> one of them was uh, an angel. The other one was a little more difficult. But both now are, are wonderful. Um, uh, and so this is a study that was published uh, in 2011, and I alluded to this earlier. It's really a, a remarkable study that followed 1,000 individuals in a city in New Zealand, uh, Dunedin, New Zealand, a city very much like Madison. It's a university community. Uh, and they followed 1,000 people from birth, just randomly selected. Uh, and they measured, when the children were four and five years of age, they measured their capacity for self-control. And one of the key attributes of that capacity is the children's capacity to delay their gratification. And um, what they showed is that children who, at four and five years of age, were worse 
in delaying their gratification, those would be low over here in the number one, all the way at the left. When they were in their early 30s, they had significantly more difficulty and more problems with substance abuse and, and, had, and, and uh, including not just reports of substance abuse, but informant reported, informant rated substance dependence. So this is a very objective measure of um, the use of substances which affect the mind, uh, and they showed more problems uh, when they were in their early 30s, actually at age 32. So this is just based on a measure when the children were four and five years of age. Um, and what they said at the end of this discussion, I'll read the last sentence again for this, they said interventions addressing self-control might reduce a panoply of societal costs, save taxpayers money, and promote prosperity. Um, they also found that kids who were better at self-control actually were more financially thoughtful and uh, they, were, they engaged in better financial planning. They actually earned more income when they were uh, in their early 30s. And this is after very carefully controlling for the socioeconomic status of their families. So one of the peculiar things in adolescence is that development goes at different rates in different brain systems. So this is a figure which shows the development on the y-axis and on the uh, x-axis is the age. And what you can see is that in adolescence, the emotional regions of the brain, the subcortical regions, develop much more rapidly compared to the prefrontal regions, which are the regulatory regions, important for restraint. And so what we have are children whose subcortical areas are, uh, are quite mature and they're functioning, uh, but there is a relative inability, a difficulty in restraining those impulses because the prefrontal systems are not so well developed. Uh, and in the modern era, puberty actually is occurring... <laughs> And what's happening today in today's society is that adolescence, based on puberty, pubertal changes, begins earlier. If we look even 100 years ago, Your Holiness, the average age at which puberty 
starts is about age 16. Today, it's much, much younger. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some subgroups in the United States, you can see the onset of puberty at age nine. But still, what we're left with today is a longer period of adolescence than we've ever had before in human history. And uh, that, when, when you... Can you unpack? What do you mean? The, because puberty is occurring earlier. Okay. Uh, and uh, if we... It, so, so the age at which puberty occurs starts earlier. And um, uh, the, the period during which individuals, therefore, are adolescents uh, in a biological sense has been expanded. So, so, I mean, would that change in the age, kind of lowering of the age of onslaught of puberty, would that be accounted by evolutionary change? It's a great question. It, it probably is determined by many different factors, including change, differences in diet, oh. differences in um, pollution, uh, differences in urban stress, many different factors, not a single factor. Many, many factors. Mm. But generally, isn't, isn't it the case that the lifespan is increasing? Yes. Uh, yes. 100 years ago in today. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yes. But this expansion of the period of adolescence mm -hmm. has resulted in an increase in mortality during the adolescent period, and mortality that is virtually all produced by the 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 biasing of decision making and the problems that adolescent the choices that they make. Uh, taking drugs, drunk driving, violence, all of those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Um, which and the modern society not there. So this is from the point of view of modern society. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Yes. Australia, indigenous people, uh, or some other places, they completely isolate from the modern, from the modern, from the modern life. And the would be different. So His Holiness was asking, has there been any research done on trying to see a difference in a completely traditional kind of pre-modern society? Would we see phenomena like this? It's, it's a wonderful question. I'm not aware of any hmm. scientific evidence on that. So in that sense, it's not just purely evolutionary force. Right, no, definitely them. not purely hmm. evolutionary. Yeah, it's due to yes. changes okay. in the modern okay. environment, yes. So uh, I'd like to move on to, to early interventions uh, as possible prevention. There's a Nobel laureate in economics, James Heckman mm. in Chicago, 
who analyzed a lot of evidence, and he came to this conclusion. There's a return of seven US dollars for every one dollar of public investment in high quality preschool programs. I believe that we, we, we have a moral responsibility to act at the preschool level, to do everything we can, particularly in light of this kind of evidence where there's such a dramatic return on, on, on the investment. And, and we know now from the scientific data. Yeah, and of course, this is due to the fact that if we don't intervene, the cost of drug abuse later on, of the uh, accidents that adolescents can get themselves into, of the, the, the wrong choices that they make, uh, the um, remedial educational needs that they may have, all of those add up to this kind of uh, economic payoff for investment in early education. And the, the previous slide that I showed showing that children age four and five who uh, have difficulty delaying their gratification, they're the ones that get into problems mm -hmm. later on. So can we teach children at very early on to exercise more restraint, the ethics of restraint in, in your language, your holiness. Can we teach them to delay their gratification? And um, we've, um, uh, along with uh, our colleagues at Mind and Life, many of us have been thinking about how to do this. And uh, in one effort, we've developed a kindness curriculum uh, that involves kindness and mindfulness that we teach to preschool children ages four and five years of age. And these are just some of the activities. We teach them to be mindful of their bodies. We teach them uh, that uh, they can go to places uh, where they uh, feel secure to, uh, uh, to practice kindness. Uh, we uh, teach them that they should work out problems once they have calmed down. Uh, we also practice gratitude uh, and have uh, uh, a theme on interconnectedness with all other people and the planet, uh, and also uh, uh, caring for the world. Uh, and these are some of the central themes that we introduce. And the curriculum uh, is a curriculum that uh, we um, uh, teach for 90 minutes a week, very three 30-minute periods uh, for eight or 12 weeks. So it's a modest mm. amount of time, not very much. And um, one of the measures that we use is a measure that involves delay of gratification. Uh, and I'd like to just show you um, an example. This is... So this is from a classic experiment that was done many years ago in psychology. This is not our research, but is the work of a very famous psychologist by the name of Walter Michel, very wonderful and important psychologist. Uh, and uh, he did this work uh, where he had young, very young children and he asked them, 
I will give you one marshmallow right now, but if you wait for a few minutes, you'll be able to have two marshmallows. Uh, and he just observed what they did. And I'd like to show uh, your holiness and, and everyone else what, how children respond <laughs> in this kind of situation. I like this. Okay, so here's the deal. There's a marshmallow. You can either wait, and I'll bring you back another one, so you can have two, or you can eat it now. So you can eat it now, or you can wait, and I'll bring you back two. Okay? Okay, I'll be back. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Okay. And here's the deal. You can either eat it now, or you can wait till I get back, and you can have two. Okay? okay? So eat it now or wait till I get back and you can have two. And I'll be back in a little bit. If we wait, we, 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 you'll get us two? Yep, if you wait, Still ate some of it, so she's still looking at the children. 
your brow. This, there's just a wide diversity, and you saw some of that diversity there. So we actually gave this measure to a group thing. Have you taken into account the variability due to being hungry? <laughs> yes, we, that is taken into account. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you can do it with snacks, you can do it with crayons, many different things. And what we found, this is very new data, Your Holiness, that we've just finished analyzing from a group. This is uh, 50 children who received the kindness curriculum, 50 children who are in a control group. And what we see is that the children who are in the kindness curriculum after 12 weeks of receiving the mm. curriculum significantly improved in their ability to delay gratification on this test, mm -hmm. whereas the children who were in the control group showed no significant change. So to us, this suggests that um, a simple mindfulness and kindness curriculum for preschool children can di directly lead to improvements in the ethics of restraint. So it is possible to to educate young children in this way. And this is just a modest, very modest effort, uh, but it really needs to be done in a much more mm -hmm. expanded way. So in the interest of time, I'm gonna actually skip this next section because we'll have time to go through it more during the mm -hmm. week. And I want to uh, make sure we have time to review issues that are unique to the Tibetan situation. So with your permission, I'm going to really just skip this. Um, and uh, this is a study that was published uh, several years ago, an epidemiological survey of alcohol use disorders in a Tibetan population. Uh, and this is from a group of scientists who are in China um, uh, who have been studying this issue. And uh, this was a survey done of approximately 5,000 uh, Tibetans who are living in the Lhasa region. Not, not all in the city, many uh, else outside the city. Um, a broad distribution of the population. And um, what they found is that alcohol use disorder, and I'll explain how that's measured in just a moment, but alcohol use disorder was found to occur in about 9.5% of females and 31% of males. Mm. By comparison, using the identical measure in the United States, these are the percentages. Um, females, about 5%, and males, about 12.5%. So a, a, a much larger... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so the measure that was used to, to determine alcohol use disorder includes questions like this. How often do you have six or more drinks on one occasion? And those who report alcohol use disorder are reporting uh, having six or more drinks weekly or daily, or almost daily. Um, during the past year, how often have you failed to do what was normally expected of you because of your drinking? 
And again, those who have alcohol use disorders report this weekly or daily or almost daily. Uh, other items, have you been unable to remember what happened the night before because you were drinking? Again, same pattern. And finally, have you or someone else been injured as a result of your drinking? So these are um, fairly significant uh, impairments in everyday life that are being represented in this metric. Uh, and uh, uh, so this is um, certainly an issue that uh, hopefully we'll come back to and uh, um, may our efforts during this meeting be of some benefit to the Tibetan community um, uh, in this uh, area. Now, one of the other interesting things is since the Tibetans are a relatively um, isolated group, uh, uh, there are some interesting genetic issues which are being examined in modern science today. And this was a paper published in a very important journal in 2009 um, showing that there are very specific genes that are um, been identified uh, in Tibetan communities that some of the genes confer additional risk. They're genes that involve the metabolism of alcohol in the liver. Uh, and they increase the likelihood that the same amount of alcohol will have a more severe impact on the individual. Other genes are resilience genes. They actually protect the person. So it's, it's a complicated combination, but it, it, the, I just present this to illustrate that this is now a vibrant area of research in the Tibetan population that is now being done by scientists, um, mostly in China, with collaborations from uh, uh, scientists elsewhere in the world. So I want to end now with just a series of questions that will be the questions that I think we'll be pursuing as we go through our week together. Um, to what degree are drug addictions and other forms of addiction similar? Uh, Diana talked about our addiction to oil, uh, our addiction to consumption. To what extent is that similar to the more um, classic forms of drug addiction? And there's some evidence even from neuroscience to suggest that they actually share similar brain circuits. What are the predisposing factors that increase the, a person's likelihood of developing an addiction? We're all, again, similar, but we're also different. And some individuals have a much greater likelihood of developing this than others. And can we learn something from that? How should the issue of free will be considered in relation to addiction? Uh, in light of the evidence that there are impairments in regulatory systems in the brain which clearly play some role in what we normally th think about as free will. And then are there preventative strategies that can be implemented early in life to minimize the likelihood of later problems? Can we teach self-control to young children? And does training in secular ethics in young children decrease the likelihood of subsequent addictive disorders? And I think this is an area where we as a society have a moral responsibility to, to, to act um, because there, there is now more and more evidence to suggest that this early intervention could make a really important difference. 
And finally, what specific contemplative practices might serve as an antidote to specific aspects of addiction or the antecedents of addiction? Uh, and so this is something that uh, I, I think the contemplatives will help us to understand as we go along. So these are the questions that um, we'll be addressing. And uh, thank you again, Your Holiness, for all of your uh, kind consideration and your inspiration. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.